I heard that story secondhand from someone who knew the person who experienced it. Um, there are truly lots of stories like that. Did you guys realize, um, many of you probably saw this in the news, uh, last fall, um, the population of the world passed 8 billion. We now have more than 8 billion people living um, on earth. And probably somewhere between 2.5 billion and 3 billion people in the, wor- in the earth, approaching one-third of the entire earth's population, has never clearly heard the gospel. And uh, you guys who know me well know I'm the, the Frontier Mission guy, right? I'm the guy that loves to talk about God in the world and how we make connections, how each and every single one of us that are called to follow Jesus, each and every one of us that commits to that life as a Christian, as a Jesus person, Jesus follower, every single one of us is called to be a global Christian. Every single one of us is called to work towards that task. The one task that Jesus really truly left the church to take the Gospel to all nations, all people groups, all the specific ethno-linguistic people groups that live in the world who have not yet had the chance to hear the Gospel. About 40% of the world's people groups have never had that chance. So there's a difference, right, between lost people and unreached people. We have lost people all around us. Our neighbors, in our community, every people group has lost people. Not every people group is part of that 2.5 billion that are currently outside of the reach uh, of the church, the work of the church, not outside the reach of God. Jesus still appears to people. Um, Anyway, you you might have heard this too. More Muslims have become believers and followers of Jesus in the last 20 years than in the first 14 centuries of Islam combined. So God is at work. Jesus is alive and well in the world. God is reaching into places that have never been reached. And we are uh, called, each of us, to be a part of that. Um, The biggest piece that's missing is prayer. Because we are are each of us... um, oftentimes just immobilized because we don't know these things. We isolate ourselves. We focus on our own problems, our own issues. Um, The text we're going to look at today would not classically be called a frontier mission text, Um, but I think the more we see this task that Jesus leaves us, the more we see God's activity throughout the world, the foundations um, for God's redeeming of the peoples of the world as as the one thread that really holds all of the scriptures together. Um, So before we come to that text in John 14, we've been walking through John as um, uh, looking at who Jesus is and then because of that who we're called to be. Um, So I want to give some context. Uh, So we've got to go back a few weeks. Uh, Many of you probably remember when Luke Parker was here, the the, uh, church planting catalyst for our denomination. Uh, And he he preached uh, a wonderful sermon called Can I Get a Witness? He told us more about church planting. He seamlessly connected that to what God is doing in the world. Um, He said a really interesting thing while he was here. He was talking about these witnesses, specifically the leaders in that passage, the Pharisees, the scribes, um, who can see the works that Jesus is doing. That's something Jesus talks about in uh, in our passage again today. Who can see those works, but he says they see them, they don't disbelieve that they happen, but they refuse to talk about them. They refuse to share that, share what God is doing 
with others. And he says, they're not witnesses. They're only witnesses if they see and then share. And that's a beautiful image for what's, what's coming uh, into this thing. As we moved into chapter 13 a few weeks ago, um, we started this big, long, chapters-long discourse of Jesus where they're not traveling around anymore. We're already into the last week of Jesus' life before His crucifixion. And He's been sitting and teaching and, and so much of John is geared towards the, resur- the, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And so this passage that we're coming to now is part of that. Over the last couple weeks, we've talked about a couple of predictions. Um, I I thought surprisingly, John said the prediction that Jesus would be betrayed by Judas is assuring. That was intended to assure the disciples. Can you imagine this? They're meeting. Uh, And the reason is, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, because of God's sovereignty. Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus is already sovereign over what's about to happen. And so he is giving his disciples some encouragement. What's about to happen is really intense. What's about to happen is really scary. Specifically, the closer you are to Jesus, the closer that might happen to you. And so he's assuring them, I know what's coming. And then we get this other prediction uh, that we looked at last week that Peter will deny Jesus. Peter has said, I'm going to die with you if I have to. Let's raise the army and fight. And Jesus says, nope, you're going to deny me. And that's that's the uh, the heels of where we are. That's what has just come um, right before this passage. It's a lot of confusing things, right? Imagine yourself, uh, proud Peter, right? I'm going to fight. I'm ready to take up arms for this cause. It's so worth it. Let's go defeat our enemies. And Jesus says, nope you are going to completely abandon me. So that's confusing. They just said this thing about betrayal. The disciples have no idea what's going on. This huge crowd has just praised Jesus. Um, Way back in in the first part of chapter 13, there's this triumphal entry where he comes in. They're praising him. All these leaders are conspiring. Everything is crazy right now for the disciples. And then this is what Jesus speaks to them in the middle of that. So we'll pick up right at the beginning of chapter 14. John 14, 1 through 14. This is Jesus speaking. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to Myself, so that where I am, you also may be. And you know the place, the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. If you know Me, you will know My Father also from now on. You do know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and still you do not know Me? Whoever has seen the Father has seen Me. Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the way to the Father? Show us 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me. Do you not believe because of the works themselves? Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And, in fact, will do greater works than these. Because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In my name you ask me for anything. I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus, in the midst of this chaos, speaks this word of peace. The passage we read a little earlier that comes a little later in John is often called the the Great Commission in John. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And in that same passage, he promises peace. He promises God's peace, which is coming later in chapter 14. But Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled even though things are crazy. I am sovereign over that. I know things get crazy. It can't distract you from the task that I've given you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And how how does He say to do that? Believe in Me. He says you believe in God. It's an interesting... um, The language is not clear in the original Greek. Uh, It might be saying you already believe in God, so you already believe in Me. It might be saying believe in God as a command, so also believe in Me. That's how we historically read it. The point here is belief. The Greek word for belief, which is one of these words I think that the church should own, is pistis. Pistis. And it, it, our word belief does not capture it. Because it includes, as part of it, an action. It's not just belief. It's putting faith. It's putting trust. It's reliance upon. Which requires something to be done. Not just an intellectual assent to something, which is where we often get hung up. So Jesus is saying, look, you are already a believer of God. You've been with Me. I am with you. Therefore, put this into action. Now, uh, I used to work as a hospice chaplain. I did that for a few years. So it's probably no surprise to you guys that uh, I've preached this text a number of times. John 14 is one of the favorite texts for funerals of all time. I've never preached it, I don't think, outside the context of a funeral. It's a great text for a funeral, right? It's a beautiful text for a funeral. But I I don't think we choose it for the right reason. I think we choose it because of how the King James used to say, um, in my father's house are many rooms. In my father's mansion, there are lots of rooms. And so this is the Western way to read this, right? This is the way most of us think about it. So I'm going to go up to heaven and I'm going to fix things up, and then I'll bring you to heaven with me. And that's the way we think about it, and so we love this as a funeral text. The reason it's actually a great funeral text is because Jesus promises to be with us. Just like He does in the Great Commission, for instance, in Matthew. And remember, I am with you always till the end of the age. But but notice a few things about this text. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, Um, I will go and prepare a place 
and then I will come again, so that where, you, where I am, you may also be. Not, I go to prepare a place so you can escape this horrible, chaotic world where everything's a big mess, and I'm just going to whisk you away to heaven, and it'll all be okay. That's not what he says. Jesus doesn't give an uh, elaborate description of what heaven looks like. Um, most of our ideas of heaven really come more from Dante in the 12th or 13th century than they do from the Scriptures. Jesus says, I will come again so that where I am, you may also be. And the implication is forever. It's, it's really beautiful. It's, it's also interesting, this word, the, the translation I used this morning was dwelling places and not rooms. Um, it, it's, there's kind of this idea that um, God has this big estate and there is a place for all of us at that big estate. Um, one, one in New Testament scholar I really like says, this whole language would have called to mind the temple complex for all of Jesus' disciples, for the Jews, because the temple was the place where heaven and earth meet. The temple was the place where God dwelt. That was where you went if you wanted to be close to God. And Jesus is now claiming, by implication, you don't have to do that. And as he comes again, this same scholar says, uh, there's a hope for the new heavens, the new earth, for those things to be completely joined together uh, in God's kingdom. But that word is only used in one other place. Isn't that, I always find it interesting when you find a particular word that only gets used once or twice in the New Testament. It's only used one more time, and it's later in chapter 14, in verse 23. Uh, it says, uh, Jesus again speaking says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Our home, our dwelling place. We will come and abide. It's like, it's like in John chapter 1, way back in the beginning. Um, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who, who did the message paraphrase, said, um, the Word uh, moved into the neighborhood. I loved it. There's this sense of, of God coming to be with us um, that's most important. Um, Dale Bruner, who is a... a, a a commentator, biblical scholar, says, says it this way. I think it's really distinct. I love it. He says, what we call heaven, John's Jesus calls where I am. Isn't that beautiful? And so, so part, part of what Jesus is saying, even now, in this text, to these disciples who are in this chaos, who he knows more than they do, have more chaos coming, and 11 of the 12 um, original apostles, right, die violent deaths, um, at least in, in terms of church history, that's, that's what's believed. Um, and the one that doesn't is, is John, actually, who gets exiled to an island and lives there, you know, by himself, so it's not exactly like he has a, a peaceful, wonderful life. Jesus knows what's coming, and he says into this, don't be troubled by this. Expect it. Expect difficulties in life. Maintain that belief because I'm with you, and I'm going to be with you in heaven and beyond heaven, in life after life after death, when the kingdom is consummated, when Jesus comes back, when the new heavens, the new earth are brought together. It's a beautiful thing. Look at Thomas and Philip. We move on. If this is just a text for them, hey, don't worry about it, you're going to die violently someday, but you'll be up in heaven, uh, we've got to look at how they respond to this, right? So... 
I love Thomas. Thomas is one of my favorite guys uh, in the New Testament, right? He's just so blunt, right? He just, he just comes right out with it. He just says, he says, we, we don't know the way. <laughs> you can hear the fear in his voice, can't you? We, you, can, you can just sense this desperation, like Jesus saying, um, you know the way I'm going. You know the way to the place that I'm going. Seems really esoteric <laughs> to Peter, I mean to, to Thomas, right? Really kind of <laughs> out there, some sort of weird spiritual thing, and he can't figure it out. So he just says bluntly, We're, we don't know the way. Tell us the way. And this is when Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There can't be any question here that the emphasis that Jesus is making at the moment of crisis among his disciples is himself. Philip still doesn't get it, right? You've got to love Philip too. It's like you, they're like the, the three stooges except just the two of them, right? Maybe you can add Peter into that. Philip, Philip says, just, just show us the Father. <laughs> it's like, it's like I, don't, I don't get what you're saying, Jesus. I'm not sure I want that. So just, just show us the Father. Just reveal the Father to us. It'll just skip all this weird language that we don't understand. It'll just get to the point. Show us the Father. Jesus says, if, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He connects it back to belief, Right? If, if you're not able to believe just on the basis of me, Jesus says, believe on the basis of all the works you have seen that I've done over the last three years, that you've been with me. You've seen people miraculously fed. You've seen the, the blind get their sight. You have seen people healed. You've seen people raised from the dead. It makes you think of what, uh, what Jesus says to John the Baptist, right? When John sends word to him uh, earlier, when John's in, in prison and John sends him word that says, hey, is this it or not? Are you, the, are you the real deal or are you not it? Should we wait for the next person? And Jesus says, go back and tell him what you've seen. Go back and tell him about the works. If you can't believe because of me, believe because of the works. Believe because I still appear next to 15-year-old girls in hospitals halfway around the world. I hold their hand and I heal them. That young lady's a follower of Jesus today. She's in seminary to be a leader among her people who have very, very, very few followers of Jesus. So then we get to this really crazy thing, as if this, this particular text hasn't been crazy enough. Jesus says, in fact, you're, you're going to do these works that I've been talking about. And, who's ready for some real crazy, right? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. You're going to do greater works than these. Can I, I know we're Presbyterians. Can I get a show of hands? Anybody ever read that and thought, oh my goodness, what are you talking about, Jesus? This is crazy. Really, there's, all right, like literally put your hand up if you've never felt like that. I mean, I have. What on earth is Jesus talking about? Jesus heals blind people who've never seen anything. Jesus raises the dead. He does all these healings. What is Jesus talking about? How are we supposed to do anything like that, much less greater than that? Can I get an amen? What on earth is Jesus talking about? We've got to take a bit of a step back. We need to look at who is Jesus? 
Who do we see Jesus as in this passage? And therefore, how does that impact us? Who are we called to be because of that? So we take a quick step back. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus is the way. He says it clearly. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus is the exclusive way to have communion, relationship with God. He says, I am the truth. Jesus is God's personal truth. Um, It's not just that Jesus says things that are true. It's not just that Jesus doesn't say lies or doesn't deceive people. It is that Jesus Himself defines truth. Jesus teaches us what truth is because He says, I am the truth. And finally, I am the life. Jesus is the miraculous life of the Father. This is meant literally, right? Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is raised from the dead. He has power over life itself. And so through Jesus the life, we are brought this miraculous life. So we see that clearly about who Jesus is. We see the emphasis, even in the midst of let's go up to the many rooms, the real, the real emphasis is that's where Jesus is and that we want to be wherever Jesus is. Um, I'll tell you a quick story I heard a few years ago. Um, there's a, a, a missionary worker uh, who lived in the Middle East and, and he had traveled to a, a neighboring country that was more difficult where he was. Lots of infighting, lots of um, uh, kind of civil war between villages and different groups of people. Um, and they're coming into this village. He and there's some folks with him, including some locals, and he, he spoke Arabic fluently. Um, and they basically get kidnapped. They get taken at gunpoint, put in uh, to a couple of jeeps and driven to the local chieftain, basically. And they're sitting with this guy, and he says, why are you here? Why have you come? They didn't say, as the Father sent Jesus, so he sent us to you. But that's why they're there, right? Like, that's, that's the clear connection. But what he does say is, well, he says he didn't do this all the time. It just kind of happened. It was one of these spirit moments. Uh, he says, um, to this chieftain, why are you here? He says, well, you know, we're all followers of Jesus. And when we read about Jesus in the Injil, which is the, the Arabic word, the Muslim word for the New Testament, um, we see that uh, Jesus is constantly with uh, marginalized people, basically. Poor people, people that don't have food, sick people. He's always with them. And we heard your village was really struggling. Uh, and so we came to look for Jesus. Have you seen him? That's literally what he said. Have you seen, have you seen Jesus? And <laughs> can you imagine that, right? This guy holds your life in your hands. And the guy says, that's really interesting. I want to learn more about this. I will speak with you more about this tomorrow. And he kind of issues a decree, right, that spreads really quickly through the village. These people are my guests in this village, and if you harm them, it's like you are harming me. And they get to tell them more about Jesus. It's, it's, really, it's really amazing. We don't think that way, though, right? We don't think, how, how are we engaging in what God is already doing? How do we be a part of that as called to be global Christians? How do we do these works? Have you ever thought about this angle? 2.5 billion people is a lot of people. Right? Over 7,000 distinctive ethno-linguistic people groups that don't have access to Jesus. That's a, big, that's a big task, right? We can't do that by ourselves. 
I, I personally believe that one of the things Jesus has in mind, um, and what he says, right, is because I'm going to the Father, because I'm going to go be with God, and my spirit will be sent to you, that's what comes later in John's Gospel, because of that, that's why you'll be able to do these works. Because you'll be empowered by the Spirit. Because I will still be with you even when we can't see you because of the power of the Spirit. And I think one of the things Jesus has in mind here, maybe not the whole of it, is that particular task that even in John's Gospel, he will leave them in a few chapters, right? After his resurrection. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Jesus didn't reach, right, in his earthly ministry, two and a half billion people. But does Jesus call us to do that? Is that greater? I think it is. I don't have the answer to what it, what it means. Sorry, I, if I led you on like I was going to tell you what it means that we do greater, greater works, I don't, I don't really know. But I knew, though, that taking the gospel to the nations is an incredible task completely overwhelming to any one particular one of us, to any one particular church. That's who we're called to be. That's what this means. That's what Jesus is saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. It's a great I am statement. We get seven of them in John. This is one of those. Because of who I am, you're called to be sent. Each of us is called to figure out how to be part of that task. Each of us is called to seek the Lord to say, what would you have us do? And moving into our community, which has become more international, is great. That's amazing. We have so many people around us that don't know Jesus. We have so many people from other nations that don't know Jesus. There are still other people at the ends of the earth that don't know Jesus. We are called to seek the Lord intentionally to make an intentional decision that I'm not just going to continue to mature and think about what I'm doing in my spiritual life and how I'm close to God. We have to intentionally get out of that maturing circle and go towards kingdom activation, right? Like, how am I active to this kingdom? How am I praying every day for an unreached group of people that doesn't know Jesus, never had access to the gospel? Can you imagine that? It's unimaginable in our world. It's unimaginable in our nation that we would not have access to Jesus. I'll leave you with one more quick story. Back in October, I was at a conference that was a gathering of uh, Indonesian leaders, uh, both mission workers, churches from the U.S., and Indonesians who are believers who are doing work in Indonesia. Um, and I heard a story from a guy while I was there that really moved me. Um, this is a pastor. He's not, he's not an old guy. He's in his 60s. Can I get an amen to that? He's in his early 60s. He pastors a church in Indonesia that has sent dozens of mission workers out. Indonesians who are working cross-culturally in Indonesia, but with different people groups. He sent dozens of them out. And he said uh, he had learned about this thing called member care. Member care is kind of like code word in mission circles for how do you care for your missionaries that you're sending out, right? And so Indonesia has done an amazing job of a number of things, uh, engaging uh, all of their unreached people groups. and all. There are no longer any unengaged 
unreached people groups in the whole country of Indonesia. Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world. It's 240 million people, and they have intentionally arranged, I think that's the word for it, they have intentionally made sure that all those peoples have a witness. It's unbelievable. They're at the cutting edge of this. They're well beyond where we are um, in terms of how we engage. So, so anyway, he says he learns about member care, and he says, I just, I, I felt convicted. I did not, uh, you know, we haven't been doing good with this, right? And so then shortly after this, uh, he got COVID, and he almost died. Um, he was in the hospital. He was in a coma. And, and this is the part that I found so amazing. He comes out of the coma, and he said, I was so sad because I wasn't with Jesus. He said, I, I, he, basically, he said, I wish I had died. I was so ready to die because I would have got to rest from my labors to be in a more real, literally, I would have been in heaven with Jesus. I wake up, I'm sad. And then I get this conviction, right? You've not been doing member care. I've got work for you to do, is what he, he hears God saying to him. I have work for you left. And he said, I realized I deserve to not die. <laughs> Can you guys imagine that? It's totally flipping everything on its head. We would always think, I deserve to die because of these things. I deserve to not die. That's what he said. Each of us right now, we deserve to not die because God has something for us in this task. And Jesus is with us in the midst of it. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's have a prayer. Lord Jesus, we are, Lord, we, we don't even know how much it means to us. We can't comprehend your goodness in coming to us even as the creed says, for us and for our salvation, you came. You died, you were raised from the dead, you ascended to heaven. You live now and forever, and we pray, God, you would fill us up with the power of your Spirit, with the power of your presence, the power of the hope that you give us to be a part of what you do here and in the world. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.